last in our series of First Timothy. So I, I had a question for you, and it, it is a, a, a true question. This time I actually do want you to raise your hand, um, even, if, even if you don't want to like, admit to it. But how many of you at some point during this study have read through the entirety of First Timothy? Either straight through or just in little portions all the way through it. All right, sweet. That's good, that's good. You ought to have. Um, in fact, if you've been here each week or if you've watched them online, you will have seen all the way through. And we've read everything except for what we're looking at right now. So uh, I would hope that everyone has spent a little bit of time outside of here studying this as well. You'll notice if you've read through it that I haven't hit everything. Um, there's just so much in God's Word. It's such a, a depth that you know, sometimes when we go back later, we realize, oh, I missed that. And, and this week I was reading through and I'm, I'm like, oh man, why didn't, I, why didn't I focus on that? Why didn't I emphasize that? Because you know, there are different things throughout this book that are just so cool and so awesome. So I wanted to take just a moment and go back and kind of look at uh, a couple of things that I had in the very first sermon uh, on First Timothy about 10, 12, maybe 14 weeks ago. Uh, we started off and we looked at this idea of what it is to be living in this, this thing we call a church. And what is it to be a man of God? What is it to be someone who, who follows what God expects of us? Um, and in a moment, I've got a slide up here that's going to show some of the key verses that I pointed out. Now, I'll give you a heads up. I do want some volunteers. I'm going to ask a few of you to go ahead and read some of those key verses once it comes up on the, on the slide. Of Yeah, some of the key verses through the book of First Timothy. And I'll bring you the, the microphone because uh, I've had some sword drills and they can't hear it on, online. So if I can have a volunteer who wants to read 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. Thank you for volunteering. Yep, read it out of your Bible. 1 Timothy 1, 5. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. All right. And someone else. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. First Timothy 3.15 If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. All right. Can I get a couple of the guys to volunteer? Oh, Zeke's got his hand up next. <clears throat> Four thirteen. And until I come, develop yourself in the public reading the scripture, to preaching and to teaching. All right. And chapter six, verse three, all the way at the back. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the doctrine conforming to godliness. All right. And then the last one I'm not going to have anybody read because we're actually going to be in that section this time. But these are some of the key verses that, that I pointed out when we first got started. And as we, 
have gone through, we recognize these are the themes, these are the things that Paul brought up to Timothy over and over again. Um, next slide, if you would. We'll actually see that there are, there are certain themes that he emphasizes throughout. Now, I know that there are a lot of different references listed up there. Um, so if you, if you can't scribble them all down, that's okay. I can get you a copy of it. But there were three main ideas that he's been dealing with throughout all of this. One of them was that he was warning Timothy to watch out for false teachers and bad doctrine. It's, it's a constant thing. As you read through the New Testament, you're going to see over and over again that Paul is warning people, look out for these things. And not, not just Paul. Actually, all of the, the New Testament writers are going to warn against these things that draw us away from what God expects and what God wants us to be doing. At the same time, though, he doesn't just leave it with, you know, stay away from this, stay away from that, stay away from. He actually says, go to other things which was part of why I wanted to emphasize to the kids this idea when you're, when you're looking at tag, you're running away from, you're fleeing certain things, but you're also pursuing certain things and going after certain things. And so Paul is emphasizing both of these. He's saying there are certain false doctrines that we need to stay away from, but there are also good doctrines that we need to reaffirm and that we need to stay uh, connected with. And then the, the last thing that was emphasized is organization of the church. How is the church supposed to operate? And there's, there's a lot of different things listed throughout the book. And really, that's one of the main points that he, that he gives to us is this idea of what is the church supposed to be. See, we who grew up in America, grew up in Christianity, we're, we're familiar with this idea of the church. And yet, when Paul was writing this to Timothy, this was something completely different, something completely new that they were still learning about and figuring out. And so Paul is helping Timothy understand, hey, I, I asked you to stay in Ephesus so that you can help set certain things in order, so that you can help make sure that it goes the way that God wants the church to be. And so <clears throat> organization of the church is one of the, one of the big ideas so as we, as we wrap up, as we finish this out, I just wanted to, to take a moment and look back at some of those ideas, some of those key themes. And we've, we've seen a bunch of them. Um, and if you take, I saw a couple of people taking a picture of it already. If you look back and see this slide, you'll be able to, to go through and then again notice those things that Paul is emphasizing for Timothy to be aware of. Well, in this last section, we're getting to um, he's kind of trying to give a conclusion. He's kind of trying to wrap everything up. And so some of these ideas that we've seen throughout the book, we're going to see them pop up again. And uh, we're going to see different words that he's used, different themes and ideas that he's talked about. But in this, this last little section, it's really going to be kind of rapid fire. There's a lot of stuff that Paul pocked packs into this last little bit that he wants to, to emphasize. He wants to leave uh, Timothy remembering certain things and emphasizing certain ideas and concepts. So we're going to go ahead and, as I've done each time, we're going to read the, the section and then we're going to try and break it apart and understand a little bit about what does God uh, tell Paul to tell Timothy and then more specifically, what do we need to be able to learn from those lessons and those ideas. So, 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting off in verse 11. But flee from these things, you man of God. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, 
perseverance and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainties of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed, and thus gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you. We've already looked at this idea of flee and pursue, run away from, seek safety from, is the idea of flee, and run towards or seek earnestly is the idea of pursue. But, obviously, the question comes up, what are we supposed to flee from? Anybody remember what the last section was talking about with this idea of flee? Worldly riches? Okay. Not not just the worldly riches, but the focus on them. The intense search for worldly riches. You'll recall last week, uh, the last verse in last week's section was, the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil which is one of those verses that has been pulled out of context and misused and misapplied so many different ways. But if you go back to verse 9, it says, those who want to get rich fall into temptation. And so it's that misplaced desire. That, that idea that he wants us to flee away from is that focus on worldly riches, on, on this, um, the stuff around us. Yes, that does include money, but it also includes other things associated with riches and wealth. He wants us to flee from the desire to seek after those things and instead wants us to pursue or to run after something else. Well, what are those things? It's listed right there. Go ahead and read it. Yep. Next slide. Each of these things. So what is righteousness? I've, I've tried to put just kind of a, a general idea of what that is. No, these are not strict definitions, but just a general idea of, well, what is righteousness? To be made righteous is to be acceptable to God. See, we have to have been purified from our sins. That's what salvation is. But then how do we pursue that? How do we continue to live in that way, in a way that is acceptable to God? What would that take to be able to live like that? Okay, allowing him to work in us and through us, conforming our lives to what God expects us to do, right? That's how we can be righteous. It's not my own righteousness. It's not my own ability that 
allows me to be acceptable to God or that allows me to live in a way, a constant, continuous way uh, that God wants me to. Instead, I have to allow him to work in me. What about godliness? Godliness is piety toward God or an attitude towards him that is correct and right. How do we, how do, we do that? Okay, humility. Having, having humility as what we ought to be. What about faith? Faith is conviction or a trust in God. Well, how do, we, how do we pursue that? How do we become more and more where we are seeking after faith? Okay, spending time in his word. If it's, if it's trusting him, understanding what he said, and then relying on that, right? And more and more as time passes, that we rely on what God has told us, what God expects of us, that's where we build our confidence. That's what we put our faith in. Love. You'll, you'll recall one of the first verses that we looked at was uh, chapter 1, verse 5. And Timothy, or Paul tells Timothy the goal or the object of the command is love from a pure mind and a... I'm going to misquote it. Let me read it right. From a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So that, that idea of love, it comes up over and over and over again. But when we start digging into love, it's not what the world thinks of as love. They throw the, world, the, the word around, meaning all kinds of things that have nothing to do with what God wants, what God defines love as. Love is, is a sacrificial self-giving for the benefit of that which is loved. It's not about what does, what does that give for me, what does the, the object that is loved do for me? It's how do I value it and put it as important and sacrifice my own rights, my own privileges, my own desires in favor of that. The perfect example of that is what God himself did, what Christ did when he died on the cross. We, we quote John 3.16 very, very quickly and very, very easily. God so loved the world that he did something, that he gave his only begotten son. The love that God has for us was so much that he was willing to sacrifice his son on our behalf. Are we pursuing that kind of love as well? Pursue perseverance. That's endurance for God is how I, how I define that. How many of you like to run a marathon? Okay, I'm putting my hand down because I... <laughs> that's, that's kind of the idea here is per- perseverance or endurance it's not just a, a short period of time. It's a constant. It's a long term. It takes a lot of time and effort and, and a willingness to put in that effort for God. He's called us to certain things. And it's really easy. It's, it's really easy. I, I witnessed this a lot when I worked in camps. Kids would come and they, they would have an encounter with God. And it would be really, really exciting. And they'd, they'd love their experience. And then you talk to them about a month later and it's gone. And, and one of the struggles, one of the challenges of uh, being a camp director was how do I connect these kids to their local church so that it's not just something that they get really, really excited and enthused about and then let it pass away, but it's something that actually affects them and changes them and has a long-term effect. Well, that's the idea of, of endurance or perseverance, that it continues on, and it, it takes work. It takes effort. 
We had, we had the kids that were there spending time every single day in God's Word. They would study it individually. They would study it in a group. They would study it with a, a speaker. They would memorize it. That took work. Lots of work. Well, that's the idea of perseverance is that we work hard, but not for ourselves, not for our own goals and desires, but for the things that God wants from us. And gentleness. Now, this, this is a word that actually doesn't show up anywhere else. So I had a little bit of trouble finding this particular uh, word and defining it. But generally speaking, gentleness is the idea of meekness. Um, how, how would you define meekness? Anybody have an easy definition of that? I, I see someone nodding. What you got, Jim? Strength under control. The best picture that I've ever heard of, of this idea of meekness is the horse idea. You guys, there's a lot of horses around here. Have you ever seen these massive, big thoroughbreds? They're like 1,000 pounds, 1,500 pounds. That is tons of power and strength. But when that horse has been properly trained, a five-year-old can lead it, can handle it, because all of that strength is under control. See, the, wor- the world around us thinks that meekness is weakness. But in reality, no, it's submitting ourselves to who God is and what God expects for us. We see the perfect example of that in Christ. Christ, who is the God of the universe, who has all power and all authority, submitted himself to the Father and allowed himself to come to earth and die a death that he did not deserve, to pay the penalty for our sins, the penalty that we do deserve rightly, and yet Christ took our place. So he's the perfect example of what meekness is. So we are to flee from this, this desire for worldly riches, a focus on the things of the world, and instead pursue these things, pursue acceptableness to God, piety toward God, a trust in God, the desires of God, the endurance for God, and a meekness like Christ. That's what we're supposed to do. Now, I told you that these kind of come rapid fire. The, the thing about this is Paul actually gives six imperatives in just a few verses. Very, very quickly, he's telling Timothy certain commands, certain things, I want you to do this. Not just, oh, it'd, it'd be kind of nice, it, it, it would be interesting, it would be a good thing if you, but no, like a flat out, Timothy, do this. And that's, that's the emphasis that he's got. There's six of them as we go through this. And then there's one more that I think is kind of cool. It's a military command. And it's not phrased as an imperative, but it is the same idea or the same phrasing that would be used as if he were a commander in the military that said, do this. And uh, for those who've been in the military, you know, if an if a officer, if a commander tells you to do something, it's an order. Whether, whether you're like, well, it'd be nice if you would go do this. No, the, the officer means go do it. There, there's no question there. So, he gives, he gives these various commands. Oh, I'm not quite to that one yet. <laughs> Thank you, Elsha. But he starts off with two of them. He says to flee, that's, that's a, uh, an imperative, a command. Get away from, run away from these things, but instead pursue or go after or intently focus on obtaining these other things. The next one in verse 12, he says, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold 
of the eternal life to which you have been called. The idea of fight is enter the contest. It, it would be really easy, uh, maybe not in, in his day, I, I'm not exactly sure how Timothy could have done this, but I, I look at it, and it would be really easy for us to just sit back and relax and say, well, you know, we're, we're in a fairly safe environment, a, a fairly nice environment. Sit back and relax and, and have no involvement other than, well, maybe I'll show up on Sunday morning, I'll, I'll go to church, and that, that's good enough. That's, that's really all that I need. Whereas this is like engage in the combat. Get into it. Don't just sit back and relax, but be a part of what's going on. Fight the good fight. Enter the contest. Fight the good fight of faith. And then the next one is take hold of. That idea is to grasp, to take possession of it. Now, I'll admit, when I, when I first read through this one, I'm, I'm like, okay, how do, you, how do you take hold of eternal life? I mean, that, that seems like a, a kind of a strange way to phrase it. Well, as I was digging through and, and thinking about it and, and trying to understand that idea, how do we take possession of the eternal life that Christ has given us? Well, it starts off by simply, we have to receive it in the first place. We have to accept Christ as our Savior, right? But then how do we live? How does that impact our life? How do we live in such a way that that's not just something that's out there as, as a non-entity, but it's something that becomes part of what we do, what we focus on, who we are? How do we live a life that is, is grasping the fact that there is an eternal life? There is more coming. It's not just this life. And I think that that comes back to that idea that we've already talked about of where's our focus? What are we focusing on? What are we working towards? What is our desire? What are we putting our efforts towards? Are, the th- are they the things of this world or are we putting our efforts and our focus and our mindset on the things that God wants us to be focused on? Are we pursuing after those things that God has laid out for us to, to pursue? Are we grasping, are we taking possession of even the fact that eternal life, the future of all that God has created and designed us for, is something that we can begin implementing right now? Well, how, how do we begin living as if we were already in heaven? Well, the way that we worship him the way that we interact with fellow believers, the things that we do, those are all examples of what, it, what would it be like to, to already now take possession of, of what eternal life is going to be. Take possession or take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. One, one of the things that, that Paul points out here is that Timothy made a confession he confessed something. He confessed that he was a follower of Christ. <clears throat> and he did that not only um, privately, individually, but he did it in the presence of many witnesses. And so, um, going back in verse 12, he says, Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. He was invited. The, the eternal life that we can receive is a, it's a free gift that we're invited to. In fact, all of us have been invited to take that we, we don't have to work for it. We don't have to do these other things to be able to earn it. But we can receive it and we can take possession of it because we were invited to it. And Paul reminds Timothy that he made the confession, that he already claimed that to be the case. And so if he has claimed it, if he said that to be the case, is he living like it? Is he putting that into action? This is where we get to that military command that I was talking about. He says in verse 13, I charge you. 
Now, he's actually used this phrase multiple times throughout the book. Uh, back in chapter 1, verse 3, again in 4.11, and then in 5.7, we, we see this idea of a military command that Paul has given to Timothy with expectation that he, that he does something, that he fulfills this mission that he's been put on to do. Now, I charge you, in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment. This is it's a, an infinitive, it's a constant, continuous thing that Paul expects Timothy not just once, but constantly and continuously to keep the commandment. Now, when, when I first started um, putting together the, the packet for the uh, individual Bible study, the handouts that I give out, my wife was reading through it, and she looked at it, and she was like, oh, well, what is this? And the, the thing that she circled, the thing that she honed in on was, what is the commandment? And at that point, I, I said to her, you know, that's a really good question. In fact, uh, I'm still working on figuring that one out. Because I'll, I'll tell you real honestly, I don't know all the answers. I don't just automatically know, oh, well, you know, we're reading through this. And so I, I went to some resources and come to find out they struggle with it as well a little bit. Which command is Paul talking about? Um, is he saying the commands that he had already given? Or is he giving some other command? And so as I, as I was studying through and uh, as I was thinking about it, I'm trying to figure out, okay, for, somehow this command is something that Timothy already knows. Timothy understands exactly what Paul expected of him. And this, this is a good example of, okay, how do we begin to understand things that, you know, he doesn't elaborate, he doesn't explain, he doesn't give us all the information about the specific command that, that Timothy is supposed to keep. Um, but Paul is charging him, I charge you to keep the commandment. Well, as I was going through, I went back and I read through 1 Timothy again. And I'm looking at all these instructions and these commands and these things that Paul is telling him to do. And as you go through, you begin to notice certain uh, ideas and concepts and principles keep coming up over and over again. And I think that's part of what's going on. But I already read it once. So I'm going to go back and read it again. Verse one, or sorry, verse five of chapter one, he sets out and he says, "The goal of our instruction is love." And I got pondering on that one, and, and some of the, the books that I was reading and some of the stuff that I looked at really emphasized this idea. If you, if you think back, you remember an, an exchange that happened between Jesus and the Pharisees, right? In which the Pharisees come up to him and they say, Oh, Master, who or which is the greatest commandment? And what does Jesus answer? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. And so, like I said, Timothy knew exactly what Paul was talking about, or, or at least Paul expected him to know. I think it has something to do with that. I think that the, the idea that Paul is conveying in this is, you remember that command that Jesus gave that, that one that encompasses all of the Old Testament, all of the commands, love the Lord your God with all of who you are, as well as this idea that Paul has been emphasizing throughout this, the goal, the objective, what we're focused on doing is living out 
this love that God has given us. Not love like the world has, not love like what the world is trying to claim everything about, but what God has created us for, what God has designed us for, what God expects of us, that's the kind of love that we are to have. And so I, I think that the idea that he is conveying here is I'm, I charge you, I give you a military command to keep, to guard, to protect, to keep your eyes on. That's the, the idea of guard here, is to focus on. Like if you're, if you're on watch, your duty is to look out and watch, to guard that command, that idea that God has presented both through Christ of love God for who he is, love your neighbor as yourself, and what Paul has repeatedly mentioned through, uh, throughout this. I think that that's the, the idea of the command that Paul is emphasizing here. But he says to do it in a specific way. He doesn't just say, well, well watch it, take, take guard over it, and then it's all good. But he says, guard it without stain or reproach. That idea of reproach is one we've seen a couple of times already. We saw it back in chapter 3 several times. Um, but the way, that Paul, or that, yeah, the way that Paul expected Timothy to do this is in a pure way. Not just for himself, not, not allowing sin to enter in, not any of that stuff, but to do it in a way that is without stain and without reproach. How long is he supposed to do that? Until Jesus comes back, right? That's... We, we mentioned perseverance or the idea of, of a running a marathon. Well, here it becomes pretty clear until Jesus comes back. Well, when is that? It's a good question. We don't know. God hasn't revealed that to us yet, and that's fine. We don't need to because we are to live out what God has commanded us continuously. For as long as we have opportunity, as long as we have breath in our, in our lungs, we are to continue to live that out. Whatever, whatever the command is, which as I said, I think that that is connected with Jesus' great commandment, but whatever that is, we are, or Paul is telling Timothy, I charge you to keep guard on that until Jesus comes back, however long that is. We then get into a, a little doxology or a, a praising of God that I, I find interesting. Paul has this tendency as he's going along to to, it almost feels like he's interrupting what he's been talking about because he was giving instructions to Timothy, right? He's giving him some commands, but then he interrupts it to do this, this doxology of praise of who God is. Verse 15 says, uh, which he will bring about at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, who no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And, and sometimes as you're reading through, you'll, you'll come across some of these things and it's like, wait a minute, why is this being inserted there? Well, I don't think that it's an accident. Paul knew exactly what he was doing. He did this intentionally because he's been giving all of these instructions and all of this information and all of these guidelines for how Timothy is supposed to organize the church and live his life and deal with, with those who are not following Christ the way that they ought to and deal with false teachers and, and encourage others and all of that stuff. And, you know, sometimes it's really easy to get wrapped up in the do's and the don'ts. The commands, the instructions, the imperatives. Well, I have to do this, I have to do that. I'm, I'm supposed to that we don't just step back and praise God for who he is. 
the reason that we do any of that stuff is not because it's good stuff to do, though it is. It's not for the benefit that it brings, though it does. It's because of who God is. And I think that Paul is interrupting this to, to bring it back to that. And we already saw him do this once earlier on. Uh, I believe it was back in chapter 1. We saw him give this, this doxology or this praise of who God is. But he does it again here. And I think partly he's doing that as bookends to say, hey, all of this, all of these instructions, all of this information, it's not just about setting up a nice church or setting things in, in a proper running fashion. It's to remember, why are we doing this? Who is God? That's the basis, that's the foundation of all that we're dealing with. Well, he goes into some specific description of who God is. See, going back to verse 13, he says, I charge you, or I give you this command, verse 14, that you keep the commandment, keep this, this thing, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 15, which he will bring about at the proper time. The appearing of Christ is going to happen exactly when God wants it to happen. That means that God's in control of timing. And he has a perfect timing. It's not just some random time or, or a time when all the, the dominoes fall in place. It's the proper time. That, that idea is his own specific chosen time. God knows when it's going to be. God knows when it needs to be. That's when it's going to happen. Not before, not after. Exactly when God wants it to be. He who is the blessed and only sovereign. That idea of the sovereignty of God is one that gets all kinds of debate and argument, and I'm not, I'm not going to get into that this morning, but the idea that God is in charge. He's the one who has the authority. He's the only one that has ultimate supreme authority. He is the king of kings. He is the one who rules above all rulers. There's none that can, can compare, that can argue. No other law can overtake the laws that God sets. No other decrees can overcome the decrees that God gives. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, initially I thought, isn't, isn't that kind of repetitive? I mean, it, it seems like you're saying the same thing over and over again. Well, to some extent, yes. But there is a little bit of difference between these two. In one, he is the one who reigns. In the other, he is the one who rules. As Lord of lords, he sets the rules. He makes the commands. He decrees what the laws are going to be. No one else can give other laws than what God gives. In uh, the first one, in King of Kings, he is the one who reigns. He is the supreme authority. There is no president. There is no um, prime minister. There is no king that is higher than who God is. He is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. He alone possesses immortality. We, I think it was this morning in Sunday school, we mentioned the fact that we serve a living God. And that's what separates him from any of the others. Uh, Jim mentioned during one of our songs you know, that, that there are other gods that exist or that are, that are proclaimed to be, and yet none of them are living. And you go through the Old Testament and you see over and over again this idea that, that God, that the Israelites serve is the living God. And all these idols and all of these things that that other people bow down to and worship, they have no, no living, no ability, no nothing. God alone possesses immortality. He dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. His glory is, is far beyond what we can really even cope with. 
He is so awesome and so powerful. To him be honor and eternal dominion forever. Amen. Paul pauses right in the middle to emphasize this fact that these instructions, these commands, they're not just for the sake of, of living a good life or doing nice things or, or building a big church or having lots of followers or, 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 or all these things that the, the world will focus in on. They're because of who God is. That's why we do the things that we do because we recognize that God is the only one that meets these descriptions. So then, verse 17, instruct. This is another of those imperatives. Instruct, it means to teach. It means really to pass this message on. See, Timothy wasn't just to to get these things for himself. He was to continue passing this to others so that they would also know. Specifically, we see in this one, instruct those who are rich in the present world. Well, I'll admit, I, I started to think through that one. What is it to be rich? So I'm going to ask you guys, what is it to be rich? To have a lot of something. Okay. Okay, usually to have a lot of something valuable. Do I hear over here somewhere? To have more than you need. Okay. Are you rich? Are you rich in this world? I, I heard a couple of yeses. Um, according to Pew Research, the middle income worldwide is twenty to thirty thousand dollars a year. Now, I'm not I'm not asking anybody's income. I don't want to know. Doesn't matter. But that's worldwide. In the United States, they say that that seventy thousand puts you in middle mid middle class, whatever. But around the world, using that twenty to thirty thousand, less than thirty percent of the world's population is at or above that range, and that that deals with the buying power type of an idea. So I ask you again: Are you rich? So what he's about to say really deals with us, right? We we need to bear in mind that we can't slip out of this and be like, well, you know, so-and-so has a lot more than I do, and so this doesn't apply to me. No, I'm going to contest that everyone here, and most likely 90% of people in America, fall into this category. Instruct. Pass the message, or make sure that they know something. Instruct those who are rich in this present world, that's us, not to be conceited. What is conceited? The idea is high-minded, or, or thinking, well, I'm, I'm better than so-and-so because I have, you know, such-and-such. Such. You know, I'm, I'm a little bit jealous of Zeke. He gets to go to a third-world country, and he's going to see what other areas of the world live like. When I was about your age, I got to go on a missions trip as well. I went to Guatemala, and it, it was considered a third-world country, and it is completely different than what it's like living in the United States. If you've ever had that opportunity, it's a good one. I would encourage you to take it if that opportunity comes up, to be able to see what it's like in other places. And I think that you will come to realize, you know, not only are we rich, we have a tendency to be high-minded, to be conceited, to think, well, you know, we've got it all figured out. We've got all of this stuff. We've got, you know, whatever. And yet Paul is reminding Timothy, hey, instruct them. Don't, don't be that way. Don't be high-minded. Don't be conceited. Also, 
or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. The, the idea of fix their hope is to expect salvation from. That's, that's the idea that's being conveyed there. Or to look at riches as what's going to get you out of trouble, out of difficulties, out of stuff. So let me ask you, because we've already established that you're rich, are you putting your faith, your trust, your hope in the things of this world, in the riches of this world? Are you relying on them? And I'm, I'm not necessarily saying for eternal salvation. I'm, I'm not saying that. But just in day-to-day life, do you ever think to yourself, well, I, it won't be a problem because I've got these financial resources. Those can disappear in an instant and, and really have no value, no lasting value or importance. I, I have a tendency, I've, I've thought of in the past, of when I leave the house, when I'm going somewhere, I make sure I've got certain things. I don't know if anybody else does that, but you check, check the pockets. Okay, do I have my phone? Do I have my keys? Do I have my wallet? And in my mind, I, I check for my wallet because I know as long as I have my driver's license and my credit card, eh, we're good. Noth- nothing, wait a minute, Isaac. You're putting your confidence, your trust, your reliance on... Hmm, maybe I need to rethink what am I checking when I leave the house, when I walk out. Am I fixing my hope on the uncertainty of riches or on God? Maybe when I leave the house, I need to say to myself, okay, did you get up this morning and pray? Did you spend some time in God's word? Are you where you ought to be following him and leading my family? Is that where my focus is? Or is my focus on, oh, keys, phone, wallet, I'm good to go. Something to think about. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Notice he's not saying you're not allowed to have riches. You're not allowed to have that stuff. He's saying don't put your focus on it. Don't put your hope in it. Those things are provided by God richly for us to enjoy and that's fine but the problem comes when we start to rely on them when we start to trust in them instead of on God instead verse 18 this continues the idea of what to be instructed instruct them to do good to be rich which I think Magnus gave us a good definition of to have a lot of right not just to have a lot of but to have a lot of something that's valuable well what are we to be rich in in good works. We ought to have a lot of, and those are valuable. They have good purpose to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. I think what Paul's doing is he's setting up a contrast here for us to recognize. Those who focus on the world and the things of the world, the stuff whether it's, whether it's money, whether it's possessions, whether it's prestige, whatever it is, those who put their focus on that or those who put their focus on the things that God wants them to. And he, he inserted this doxology right in the middle to remind us of the comparative value of the two. This, this God that we, we looked at, he's the only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, who no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. When we look at the, the stuff of the world around us and compare it with that, there really is no contest. And yet, how often do we put our, 
trust, our reliance on finances, on stuff, instead of what we are to be instructed in verses 18 and 19, doing good, being rich in good works, being generous and ready to share, and storing up for ourselves this treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that we may take hold of what is life indeed. Stuff, riches, possessions are not life. They, they, they have only a temporary value. Yes, they are given to us by God to enjoy, and that's fine. But if we get them just to hoard them and hang on to them ourselves, that's a problem. Instead, we ought to be generous with them, ready to share them, to give them to others, recognizing what is of, of greater value, greater importance. Paul finishes out with these last two verses, and he gives a, a final command, a final instruction. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Now, in this, we've seen two different ideas of guard. Uh, the earlier one in verse 14 is to keep the commandment. That's, that's a similar idea, to guard, to watch, to observe, to keep it, to protect it. Well, here we, we also have another form of guard, protect. And I, I got digging into those two, and the, the way that I could understand it or, or draw from it is that the first one that we saw is a means, and the second one is the result. And so he's observing, he's looking, he's watching, he's keeping his eye on fulfilling that commandment, doing what God expects of him. And as a result, he will protect, he will guard, he will take care of what has been entrusted to him. Well, what has been entrusted to Timothy? We saw all the way back at the beginning that Paul had left him in Ephesus for a particular purpose and encouraged him to watch out for those who were teaching false doctrines. And as we've gone through this study, we, we dug into some of those. We didn't look at all of them, but there are, there are always false teachings, false doctrines, and false teachers that are out there that we have to be on the lookout for and be aware of. But we don't just stay away from that. It's that, that idea of tag, right? Where you don't just flee from one, but you pursue the other. And so we also need to find that good doctrine, the truth, and, and be focused on that. And then I think beyond that, what Timothy was entrusted with was that local church, that place in which God had, had placed him, that he was to take care of it, to nurture it, to train it, to help establish it, to get it to be what it was supposed to be. And so Paul is telling Timothy, guard all of that that has been entrusted to you. The truth, the, the teachings. Uh, I would even contest, you know, one of the things that, that Paul told Timothy to do was to focus on the reading or, of Scripture, of letting that be known, of the public reading of Scripture. And so all of those things he is to guard, to take care of, to protect, to make sure that it is um, ready to pass on, and to, to be what it is supposed to be. In doing that, he is to avoid worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. That's those false teachers that he's been dealing with that really, if you read Paul, he's always constantly dealing with those. Well, Timothy, as the next generation after Paul, is now being entrusted with that same idea to guard, to protect, to watch out for and avoid 
Those things, the worldly empty chatter, the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed, they've announced that that's what they're following, and thus they have gone away from the faith. See, even within the church that Timothy was leading, there were those who walked away, who went the other way, and followed after these worldly things, who pursued the, the riches, the wealth, the possessions, instead of following the faith, following what God expected and desired of them. So I guess my challenge for us, my question for us, is where do we put our focus? Are we wanting to focus on the things of this world or the things that God wants us to? And it, it's, that's not a question that you can just automatically answer, oh, of course I want to do the things that God wants me to do. Well, how does that look? Are you living that out? These examples that Paul gave Timothy are ways in which he showed that he was doing those things. We ought to be doing the same. And, and no, not all of us have been entrusted with a church that we're leading, that we're guiding, that we're, we're training and teaching and developing. But each of us have been entrusted with certain things that we have a responsibility to then do. Parents, you've been entrusted with kids to nurture them, to train them, to develop them, to help them become Christ followers as well. Older folks, I think that we've already seen that God is, expects you to be training some of the younger folks, helping them to become who God wants them to be. We all have individuals that we can influence and drive closer and closer to Christ. So whatever it is that God has entrusted to us, I want to encourage you, guard it, protect it in the same way that God has instructed Timothy to guard and protect the church there at Ephesus. Well, this concludes our study through the book of First Timothy as a group. But I hope it doesn't conclude your study through First Timothy individually. Because as I've said, there's so much in it. And if you'll go back and read through again and read through again, God's word never gets dull and boring unless we allow it to. And that's on us, not on his word. So go back again. I want to encourage you in the upcoming week. Yes, we're getting into uh, Psalms. Next week we are going to start off with Psalm chapter 1. But I want to encourage you, go ahead and go back and read through 1 Timothy one more time before we, before we walk away and leave it. Read through it and see what other things God brings to your mind that you're able to, to take and apply to your life. And then next week, like I said, we are going to start digging into this question of what is worship? What does God expect of us when we worship him? Let's close today in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the study of 1 Timothy. Um, it has been challenging, fun, difficult, enjoying, stretching, Lord, your word works on us and in us. Help us to embrace it and be ready for it to challenge us and change us. Lord, we want to be who you want us to be. So Lord, help us to trust you, to follow you, to seek after and pursue the things that you want from us and not the things of this world. It's so easy to get distracted by them, but Lord, you have such a, such a better way for us to go. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Help us to, 
read it and to apply it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.